This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. The nuclear family must be destroyed, whatever its ultimate meaning. The breakup of families now is an objectively revolutionary process. These are the words of feminist Linda Gordon, and she's hardly alone as an enemy of the family as God designed it. Both feminists and socialists have targeted the building block of society, but now so has the United Nations. But my next guest notes that this global campaign will not triumph, and there is a lot we can do to fight back. So I'm joined now by Kimberly Ellis, a policy advisor for Family Watch International and author of The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. Kimberly, it's great to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Janet. Sure thing. Well, you point out that the belonging of babies to their mothers is the key to the ordered functioning of society, and that, that warms my mother's heart. But why is, <laughs> why is that an important starting point, do you think, for understanding the key role of the family in society? I think it's it's very key, and it's one of the main reasons I, I wrote the book, is because I, I began to see, as a woman and as a mother, that women naturally exist in a place where they have great power. In fact, I think they hold one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful position in the world. And the reason I say that is because they have stewardship over the, the youth right. of the world. Right. They, directly, I mean, they're born right to them, and, and no one, almost no one denies that a, a baby belongs to its mother. And so, and, and in that way, the mother is, um, not only has claim over the child, the child has claim over its mother for its care. And so there's this immediate um, relationship, a connection that's forged at birth and even before birth that is absolutely foundational. And what it does is it, it, makes the world so that it's oriented privately rather than um, open to public regulation. Uh, of course, there's governments that support and surround the family, but the family itself is the primal thing. It's the primal unit, the primal organization, and it's based really on first the relationship of mother and child, of course, in concert with a father. Right, exactly. So the hand that rocks the cradle, there's a reason that we use that line is the hand that rules the world. This is a very foundational exactly. thing, but moms are under attack. Women are under attack. What I find so amazing about it, Kimberly, is the fact that feminists are constantly talking about liberating women. And most of the things that they say they want to liberate us from are things that wouldn't liberate us and have not liberated us. Things like abortion and things like getting rid of men and all of these sorts of things. What is their deal? Why, why are they pushing for all of of this when what they're pushing for really is not good for women and especially is not good for the family? That's a great, the great question. I think we, that we've been convinced for too, too long that, um, well, actually, the doctrine of socialism comes into play here in, hand in hand with feminism. The doctrine of socialism says that um, productive work, socially productive work happens in the public sphere, most often for money. Well, if you'll notice, motherhood and, and fatherhood don't fit the bill. Right. And so um, I think women have been too much convinced that there's no, there's no power 
in the family. There's no power in the home. Uh, they want to be beings of power, so they have to look elsewhere, not realizing that, that the real power lies where they already are. Right. And not that women can't work, function outside the family. I do, you do. That's, that's just fine. But like you say, most women, most women who become mothers value that role. In fact, they probably value it more than any other role, um, along with being, being a wife. And, and, uh, so, and you mentioned, you quoted a, a feminist or two, in which I do in the book, that, that there's this all-out war on the family, saying that the women, ha- women have to be free of taking care of their own families, of being bound, as they say, to their own families. But really, most mothers found, find a great deal of joy in doing what they do. Not that it isn't hard, but that's where the greatest joys in life come for a lot of people is in is in their families and to, so to convince women that there's no power in the home of course they're going to look elsewhere of yeah. course they're going to look somewhere other than motherhood for fulfillment and and um, a lot of people have a hard time finding anything that's as fulfilling as, as what they do at home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all know that as moms. There's nothing better. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. you had mentioned in your book some of the arguments of these radical feminists. You named two of them, this Shulamith Firestone and Sophie Lewis. Mm-hmm. And I think that is kind of a microcosm of what the feminists are arguing. Can you tell people a little bit about what they are saying and some of their agenda and some of the arguments that they're making? that are really detrimental to the family. Yes, absolutely. So Firestone was a feminist in the 70s, um, extremely radical, and she is very interesting. She's brilliant, actually. And she said, so she would, I, get, I think she would classify herself as a socialist feminist, and she said that the reason that socialism has never fully succeeded and flourished is, is this one reason. It's because we haven't been able to sever the connection between mother and child. And there's this feeling of possessiveness. But see, if you're going to have a collective society, you can't have possessiveness. And so she outright says, our goal is to destroy this possessiveness. So what she's saying is, we're out to destroy the connection between mother and child. And if you do that, I'm sorry to say, you're out to destroy society. That's what it's going to do. It's not going to make society fantastic and grand and full of equality. It's going to destroy the very foundation upon which society rests. And so we may hope that, you know, she's dead and gone now and her ideas are dead and gone, but sadly they're not. And one of the most vocal modern-day feminists, as you mentioned, is Sophie Lewis, and she mirrors almost exactly um, Firestone's message. And the thing is, she's certainly not alone. And, and we see this, it's been happening, of course, for years, this intrusion of a very radical anti-feminist, um, r- anti-family viewpoint into the public sphere, just discounting the family as a place of importance, discounting motherhood as even a thing that should be should be done. And and so Sophie Lewis says that basically all, the, the title of her book is Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. And that that's a troubling subtitle. Yeah. And uh, she says, in essence, that all blood relationships should be disavowed, that when a mother has a baby, it should be for everyone. It should just be everyone's child. No. Which, which on, a pra- <laughs> no. on a practical level, that's absurd, right? <laughs> right. Right. It takes a village. No, you know what? Fine. You yeah. village can be there. You villagers can be around, but I'm the yeah. mother. That's that's not going to fly with me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. So we've got the feminist agenda. As you mentioned, we have the socialist agenda, which obviously needs to stress the collective and the family is a, you know, a, a competing element, as it were, to the power of the state. What about the United Nations? Because you've done a lot of work on this. There are a lot of listeners who I'm sure don't know the extent to which the UN is attempting to undermine the family. What are some of the ways that the UN is really undermining the family and threatening it? Well, unfortunately, it, it appears that many of United Nations ent- uh, organizations, including UNESCO and UNICEF and UNFPA, have adopted what is um, essentially a children's sexual rights agenda. <sighs> and uh, that's how I kind of came into this uh, realm of family advocacy originally, as I encountered a, a document by International Planned Parenthood Federation uh, celebrating and advocating for children's sexual rights. Ew. And I... I thought, wait, what? I I didn't even know this was a thing in mainstream (laughs) life. And so the more I got digging, as you said, the the ties go back up to the United Nations and International Planned Parenthood Federation openly partners with uh, United Nations agencies. Now, United Nations agencies partner with a lot of people, but one of their main partners and and most influential partners is International Planned Parenthood Federation. And, And the documents that you see coming out of the United Nations for use are most definitely laced with children's sexual rights uh, rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And so, for, for instance, there's a, in the a 2018 document put out by UNESCO about teaching sexuality to children all over the world, it basically says that um, sex is a human right for all people, no matter what age, no matter uh, if you want to, if you're married or not, whether you want to have children or not, and that, that children's sexual choices should be respected at all times. <sighs> and most parents uh, find that troubling. I know I did. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> that's, that's, where, that's where we're at at the United Nations. Now, I'm not saying everything that goes on at the UN is bad. Certainly there's very good things that, that do happen, but more and more we're seeing a, a sexual rights agenda for youth being pushed and advocated for. And parents, I think, don't know that, and they should. Yeah, they certainly should. Kimberly Els is with us. Her book is The Invincible Family. We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free heartbeats for moms in crisis in the USA. When a mother chooses life, preborn centers are there to help with the baby's needs, counseling, and so much more, free of charge. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support Preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Kimberly Ells, who is a policy advisor for Family Watch International and author of The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. Kimberly, we were talking a little bit about what's going on, not only with the feminists and the socialists trying to undermine the family, but also what's been going on at the UN level. And this is a very disturbing concept indeed, the concept of pushing children's sexual rights. I mean, call me old school, but that's not a subject that kids are even supposed to be delving into, but we're seeing it not only with the abortion lobby, we're seeing it with the LGBT lobby as well with all this, oh, find your identity, you know, wherever you want to find it. If you're a boy and you feel like you're a girl. I mean, how does this all tie together, this sexual radicalism to undermine the family as well? That's a great question, and it ties in directly to the destruction of the family, although most most people don't see it that way and, and don't perceive how that's happening. But um, First of all, of course, with, with uh, same-sex marriage, if it no longer matters if, if there's a, a representative from the male side of humanity and one from the female side of humanity, which most people would think constitutes at least some sort of equality, in, um, then one or the other parents of a child is displaced. Yeah. And I'm not saying, uh, you know, those who are in favor of same-sex marriage, obviously, most people just want people's loving feelings to be validated, and I'm not saying there aren't loving feelings that exist. What my, what my contention is, is that any form of marriage that forces the child to live without the influence or even knowledge of one of its literal parents, then that's, that's problematic, and that yeah. under, undermines the rights of children, stated in international documents, and, and just inherently known, that children have claim upon their parents. Right. That they, they deserve to know who created them and to, if at all possible, be raised by those, the, those people. And so, although it doesn't intend to, same-sex marriage brings uh, problematic elements in, into that. And, and as well, so the transgender movement, which I explain in the book, is based on a totally different philosophy than the, the gay marriage movement, um, which is actually really important. And so I hope people take a look at the book for the, to see that argument. Yeah. But transgenderism is, in my opinion, perhaps more con- problematic than, than same-sex marriage, because in same-sex marriage, there's still the distinction between same-sex and opposite sex, yeah. and that those are inherent characteristics. But with transgenderism, what we see is that there are no there are no inherent physical characteristics that that are respected as such, mm. and so I explain this in, in detail in the book. But so it, it same sex marriage kind of dictates that 
men and women are are not necessary to each other and not complementary. But what, tra- what transgenderism does, and essentially, is say they male and female don't exist inherently at all. Yeah. Which, if you look at it that way, it starts to become obvious how that affects family and family law. Because if you can no longer define what a mother is, mother mother is a female distinction and father is a male distinction. And if if those things are in flux it becomes very hard to protect mothers and fathers, protect their rights and children's rights if we can no longer even define what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see this with the attack on girls in sports already. And Mm -hmm. it's ironic how you don't see more pushback from feminists on this. Feminists were the ones who were all excited about, you know, Title IX and, and all of these federal civil rights laws that protected women's sports back in the day. They're utterly silent now, even though you now have boys competing as girls and they're just crushing the girls who are competing against them and they're now girls suing but you know where does it all end because if you've bought into this ideology that's just a brand new way of looking at the world in some ways and it has never been tried before in human history the way we're trying it out i mean this will erase the distinction of the family if if it continues apace because now they're saying even the lgbt uh, activists a lot of them have said our goal is to eradicate the family we didn't really want marriage to end there for two homosexuals or two lesbians we want to get rid of the family what do they think is going to be the great new world that they're going to create if the family is gone that's that do they ever articulate that in any place that you've read do they say (laughs) if the family's gone it's going to be great because fill in the blank Right, exactly. What is going to fill in the blank? And and there's nothing that possibly can. But we talked about Sophie Lewis before. And what she says in her book is that the the future lies unwritten. So basically, she's (laughs) saying, we don't know what will rise up to fill the void of the family, but it's going to be super great. The fact is, it's not going to be super great, because there's nothing that can replace it. And so there's, there's just this kind of wild call for equality and for so-called liberation of women from from family life with with really no as you say this void gaping void left other than to say that it will be filled with a global state and and sophie lewis openly calls for communism Uh, and what she calls gestational communism just communal joy and belonging of everyone to everyone else no family boundaries and what that actually creates is chaos yeah. And if you'll notice, there's a lot of chaos happening around us in our streets, and I can't help but think that a large part of that is due to the the breakdown of the family. Yes. But we're seeing it in real life. It, it's happening all around us. You're totally right. And, and then right. on the other hand, you say, what's going to fill the place of the family? Well, the United Nations is happy to step in. Sure. They have, they have a whole global education program that they've curated that you can read about in my book that is more than happy to, as they say, mentor children in every part of their lives. And they specifically mentioned spirituality as well as emotional, uh, you know, and social and academic achievement. All areas of life they feel like they're responsible for, for the, for the youth of the world. Oh, man, that, that's a nightmare in the making. And this is all, t- <laughs> it really is, it really is. And, and this is tied then into something else you mentioned in the book, which is the global hijacking of education. Now we mm-hmm. see in our public schools in the United States, increasing indoctrination in the public schools. We're always hearing about radical sex sexual ed curriculums and, and, you know, all kinds of stuff is going on in the public schools here. What about the global hijacking of education? Because that would be a great way to be able to impart to all who are coming down the line generationally, uh, all the UN feminist socialist agenda that they want everybody to accept. That's exactly the plan. You've hit the nail right on the head. And I'll just give a brief overview. There's a lot more detail in the book. 
But so, yes, the socialists and feminists and sexual radicals of the world have taken their case to the United Nations. They have taken, taken it on full bore and are prepared to spoon feed these ideologies to our children, mostly through digital education, through our school systems. And it's already largely in place, as you'll read in the book. Mm-hmm. So UN agencies have established the Sustainable Development Goals, which supposedly the world all agrees on. But woven into those goals are, are very socialistic, feministic, uh, radical ideas that can be drawn from from them and then disseminated. And so there's, I won't go on to all the details, but then there's organizations on the national and international and local level that are all cooperating to streamline the education of the world so that everyone is learning the same things and doing the same things. And so they call that equality. What it is is domination from the top down choosing for people the ideologies that their children are going to espouse. And even, even one of the curators of one of these programs said, that they're very proud that that in Germany their programs have had a great influence so that mothers no longer feel that it's their prime responsibility to teach their young children. Good so this is something grief. we need to look at very closely, and we need to take action as, as families and parents and as a nation and disentangle ourselves from these programs. Oh, it's so important. You say the global course of action, though, is ultimately doomed to failure because of mothers. Can you speak to that issue a bit? Yes, absolutely. So the the title of my book the invincible family there's there's nothing that can take the place of the family and when all other things fail the family still remains and it will always rise again it always will because it's built into our our very anatomy and so and also you know with the the socialist and feminist goal to hack apart the bond between mother and child that's not going to happen yeah. i'm sorry that's not going to happen on a widespread you know, scale. There, you may convince some women to give up their children voluntarily, but most women are going to hold tightly to their children. They're going to love their children. They're going to do everything they can, possibly can for their children and to raise them up the way that they think is best. And so a global state coming in trying to usurp that power, just, just watch, just wait. The women of the world, the mothers of the world are not, are not going to stand for that. And, and we, we shouldn't. And we have the power. I think we have more power than we think we do. And we need to rise up to the occasion and be mothers, be fathers, bound together and stand up for our children. Very good. And and you really speak to this as well, that in the cellars and the attics, there in the home, in the kitchen, in the living room, this is where the wars against all great evils in the world will be won. That's I think that that's very encouraging because I think you ter- turn on the news right now, there are a lot of parents who are despairing. Oh no, look at the, look at the world my children are growing up in, not recognizing or appreciating the extent to which they hold a lot of the cards right there at home. Exactly. That's, that is the very seat of power. And so, yes, things are falling apart around us, but they don't have to fall apart at home. And we can help fortify our children to navigate all this madness and chaos, and they can do it. It can be done. We just have to be intentional, and we have to really plan it and band together as a family and, and just try you know, and our best efforts often are, are good enough yeah. for our kids, and then they begin to spread. The power in society lies in the home, and then it radiates out from there. So if we want to influence the whole world, we have to start at home. Yeah, we do. The state doesn't love you, but your mom does, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's important. And you've got a great list uh, toward the end of the book about things that you can do, some wonderful suggestions. One of the ones I really like that you included in there, Kimberly, was starting or expanding your collection of books. That's been something I've been on for many, many years. Why is that? That's so important, do you think, for moms and dads to do? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, if, 
if we teach basic history, even in the form of, of uh, novels or whatever, to our kids, we, look, we help them look back into history and learn the lessons. And if we look back for perspective, then we can look forward more wisely. And as well as, secondarily, not just history, but basic principles, like what are the things you want your kids to know and what kinds of qualities do you want them to admire in other people? Read books about those kind of people, yeah. with either fact or fiction. Collect great books that teach truth, what you believe is the truth, and read them as a family. Talk about them as a family. You know, we've got to have books on hand, and reading them can be extremely, extremely powerful. Absolutely. Well, some great stuff in this book. It's The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. Kimberly Ells is the author of this wonderful book, and it was so good to have you here. Kimberly, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Buffer today. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Just in the past few days, it has become obvious that there is a war on the church in America. And in saying that, it's not like it's a new thing. We have Ephesians 6 telling us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and to put on the whole armor of God so we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're told to take up the whole armor of God so we can withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That is a permanent command for the church, and it is very applicable in these days. I have a lot to get through, actually. I hope I can get through it all before I run out of time. But I have a lot of examples just from the last couple of days on the war on the church. Let's start with what happened to Students for Life. This is a wonderful student organization, a pro-life organization. They were chalking Black Preborn Lives Matter outside a Planned Parenthood in Washington, D.C., and two students got arrested. There was a swarm of police that showed up to tell them you have to stop chalking. Really? Last I checked, there was a big Black Lives Matter painting on the street in Washington, D.C., and that was cause for celebration. But not here. If you chalk a sidewalk, you're going to get hauled off to jail. Isn't that amazing? And they had a permit for this. They had a permit for this. This is incredible. Kristen Hawkins, the president of Students for Life of America, said after applying and receiving our permit for this event, this was over the weekend, after being told by the Metropolitan Police that the mayor has, quote, opened a Pandora's box by painting public streets, we arrived to find six police cars threatening to arrest our team and students if they painted, even using the tempura paint we bought that the police department specifically requested. And when we asked if we could at least use sidewalk chalk to chalk our anti-violence message on the streets, the police threatened to arrest us, and then they did. What kind of country does this? To people who are trying to save the lives of the most vulnerable Americans in existence. 
What kind of country does this? What kind of mayor does this? Oh, let me tell you about the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser. Lawmakers who attended the funeral of the late Representative John Lewis in Atlanta last week were exempt from the self-quarantine restrictions handed down by the mayor's office. How convenient. According to the mayor's July 24th order, titled Requirement to Self-Quarantine After Non-Essential Travel During the COVID-19 Public Health Emergency, any residents who travel to high-risk areas for non-essential reasons must self-quarantine for 14 days and monitor themselves for symptoms of the virus. But if you go to John Lewis's funeral... Yeah, doesn't matter. Everything is fine. Oh, okay. Is that how it works? This is via the Daily Wire, by the way. And 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 if you were wondering what's going on with funerals in Washington, D.C., according to the mayor's office, you still have to limit it to 10. Worship services are very much limited, but the John Lewis funeral exempts. Just like the Black Lives Matter protests in Washington, D.C., exempt exempt that so many evangelical leaders went to who still keep their churches closed. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? So this brings me to Dr. Fauci. Oh, good old Dr. Fauci, the infectious diseases guru. This was a report from Newsy on the issue of church shutdowns and the CDC guidelines. And I'm going to point out to you just how much of a hypocrite Dr. Fauci actually is. Listen to the beginning of this report. This is cut one. Since the coronavirus pandemic began, the music of Holy Trinity Catholic Church has come virtually. We have a prayer service on Zoom. Father Kevin Gillespie is planning for when it's safe to reopen the doors to this historic Washington church, shuttered since March. It's frustrating because, particularly when we have a crisis like this, people go to church and Zoom doesn't do it. When and how the choir comes back to these seats depends on what his task force decides using recommendations from the CDC. That task force is charged with the responsibility of following the CDC with all the minutia. That minutia is the CDC's interim guidance for communities of faith for minimizing spread of the virus. When the CDC first released its guidance for faith communities, it said, consider suspending or at least decreasing use of a choir, musical ensembles, and congregants singing, chanting, or reciting during services or other programming, if appropriate within the faith tradition. And the act of singing may contribute to transmission of COVID-19, possibly through emission of aerosols. Using the Wayback Machine Internet Archive site, we were able to track changes made to the CDC guidance. We found the CDC removed the singing warnings the night after posting them with no explanation. Also gone, recommendations to have more virtual activities and drive-in options at places of worship to avoid spreading the virus. Well, isn't that good that the CDC got rid of the first version of what it put on its website, recommendations to cease singing? Of course they should take that down. That's insane. It's against the First Amendment. Of course, they should take it down. Now, listen to what happened when Newsy interviewed Dr. Fauci. This is when it gets interesting. This is cut two. Yet Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, told us churches should consider suspending the use of a choir. He wanted to be clear, choirs are only a danger if they're in a place with high rates of infection. It's not one size fits all. When you're dealing with a, with a place that has a considerable number of cases, my recommendation still holds that the choirs should refrain from singing when you sing and you project your voice 
that aerosols of the virus come out. It could be confusing to people that hear you say that, but then they look at the CDC recommendations yeah. and that's not in there. Well, that, that's for other people to figure out. Now, that's really interesting to me. The CDC took down any wording that was trying to restrict singing or even recommend the ceasing of singing in churches. But Dr. Fauci felt comfortable enough going against what's not on the CDC website. Now, isn't the CDC the top government agency dealing with the Centers for Disease Control? I mean, that's the name of the agency, is it not? I know he's the infectious diseases guru, but you shouldn't really have the infectious diseases guru going against the CDC, should you? Seems a little confusing, kind of like most of the stuff that's going on via the recommendations over COVID-19 and all of this hypocrisy and all of these insane directives that don't have anything to do with science. You know, I I was saying just a couple of hours ago, (laughs) what would happen if we actually did have the Black Plague? How insane would this place be? I mean, if they're going this nuts against the church in this situation, how much more so would they go nuts against the church if we really did have a disease that's out there killing millions of people the way that they were trying to scare us about COVID-19 initially? Now, listen to this portion of the report. This is addressing the CDC word changing on that website. This is cut three. The Washington Post, citing two unnamed White House officials, said the CDC's initial guidance for faith communities had not yet been approved by the administration. President Trump has repeatedly called for places of worship to reopen, calling them essential. Dr. Tom Frieden led the CDC under President Obama. We asked him, could there be a scientific reason to remove recommendations to consider limiting choir use in a pandemic? I can't imagine a scientific reason for that because the the fact is that uh, choirs singing, particularly indoors, particularly without a mask, Uh, may greatly increase the risk, does greatly increase the risk that COVID would spread. The CDC still recommends choirs practice social distancing as circumstances and faith traditions allow. All right, I have no problem if choirs want to sing. I have no no problem at all. Going to church, our church isn't even having masks. (laughs) They're not because we understand the science. The science is that the masks don't do anything. And guess where we got that information? The CDC website. You know, the CDC website that they don't want to talk about when it actually has things on it that go against the leftist agenda. Now, what's interesting to me about all of this is how these people have been utterly exposed as total hypocrites, especially Dr. Anthony Fauci. He who was pictured sitting in the stands at the Washington Nationals baseball game recently with his mask around his chin yucking it up with two people sitting right next to him. There was no social distancing from the infectious diseases guru, but it gets even worse. When we come back from this break, you're going to hear the hypocrisy of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet Mapper today. If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer in Asia, would you? 
Hi, it's Janet Mefford. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ is found lacking, we're urged to help meet their need. These Christians live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of the gospel, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're remembered. For only $5, believers like Hyo in China and Miriam in Nepal will receive a Bible, be discipled in their new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. Listeners, we're grateful you've generously sent Bibles to more than 2,000 Christians in Asia. Please help us send more with Bible League International. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I'm telling you, there is a war against the church. There has always been a war against the church from the enemy of our souls. There has always been a war against the church from those who belong to their father, the devil, versus those who belong to Jesus Christ. So this is nothing new. And we know where it's all headed. We will be in heaven before we know it. And I daily remind myself of this so I can have some hope right now. And boy, a lot of people need it right now. I am talking about the war against the church. And I've been mentioning a number of stories. Hopefully I'll get through all of them before I run out of time today. But I was telling you before the break that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, has come under a lot of fire for being all over the map all over the map on the mask stuff and you should wear goggles now but he sits in the stands at baseball games with the mask around his chin yucking it up with his friends two inches away you're giving mixed messages there dr fauci and i had just played a cut from newsy where he was interviewed and he said churches should consider stopping having choirs And he said his recommendation still holds that choirs should refrain from singing because of the droplets that can be released. And, you know, I don't know if this guy's ever been in church, but choirs are pretty far away. They're close to each other, but they're pretty far away from the congregation. I have a hard time thinking that, you know, Betty's high A is going to reach the guy in the back of the church at any rate. So Jim Jordan, the congressman, did this excellent interaction recently, just, just a few days ago in Congress, talking with Dr. Anthony Fauci about the hypocrisy with the protests. And I just love this exchange. Listen to cut four. Dr. Fauci, do protests increase the spread of the virus? Do protests increase the spread of the virus? 
Uh, I think I can make a general statement. Well, half a million protesters on June 6th alone. Yeah. I'm just asking that number of no. people. Does yeah. it increase the spread of the virus? Cra crowding together, particularly when you're not wearing a mask, contributes to the spread of the virus. Should we limit the protesting? I, I'm not sure what you mean. Should how do we say limit the protesting? Should government limit the protesting? I I I don't think that's relevant to. Well, you just said if it increases the spread of the virus, I'm just asking, should we limit it? Well, I'm, I'm not in a position to determine what the government can do in a forceful way. Well, you make all kinds of recommendations. You, no. you make comments on dating, on baseball, on everything no. you can imagine. I'm just asking you, you just said that, yeah. that protests increase the spread. No. I'm just asking you, should we try to limit the protests? No, I think I would leave that to people who have more of an, a, a position to do that. I can tell you. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I already recommended the choirs stop singing. But I have nothing to say about the protests. Let me ask you this, Dr. Fauci. If the protesters were standing in downtown Washington, D.C., having just chalked Black Preborn Lives Matter on the sidewalk and they started singing Holy, 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 should they be arrested by the Washington, D.C. police? Should a number of squad cars pull up like some scene out of Dragnet and all of a sudden go after all of these people who are singing hymns? I'm just wondering because I don't know what the standard is here. He's all willing to go out on a limb and say churches shouldn't be singing, but he has no opinion on the protest. That has to be left to the experts. Yeah, that's really funny how, how you know, you're so willing to give some directive to churches on whether or not they should have choirs, but you have no opinion on the leftist protests, which agree with his politics. Representative Jordan also brought up that recent Calvary Chapel case in Nevada. You know, they recently lost their case at the Supreme Court to get some equity and equality in in how much they can gather versus the casinos in Nevada. And they lost that case. It was outrageous. It was a total violation of the First Amendment. And listen to this cut. This is cut five. Last week in the Calvary Chapel case, five liberals on the Supreme Court said it was okay for Nevada to limit church services. Governor, I, I mean, Justice Gorsuch said it best. He said there's no there's no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. I'm just asking, is there a world where the Constitution says you can favor one First Amendment liberty protesting right. over another practicing your faith? I'm not favoring anybody over anybody. I'm just making a statement that's a broad statement that avoid crowds of any type, no matter where you are, because that leads to the acquisition and transmission. And I don't judge one crowd versus another crowd. When you're in a crowd, particularly if you're not wearing a mask, that induces it's a, it's the spread. A simple, it's a simple question, doctor. Should we limit the protest? Government is obviously yeah. lim limiting people yeah. going to church. And, and look... Uh, I'm there's not, been no, there's been no violence that I, I yeah. can see at church. I haven't seen people yeah. during a church service go out and, and harm police officers right. or burn buildings. But we know that, I mean, for 63 days, right. nine weeks, it's been happening in Portland. Right. Yeah. Well, one night in Chicago, 49 officers were injured, but no limit to, pro no limit to protest. But boy, you can't go to church on Sunday. I don't know how many times I can answer that. I'm not going to opine on limiting anything. I'm just going to tell you. You've opined a on a lot of things, Dr. Fauci. Yeah, but I've never this said This is something that directly impacts the spread of the virus, yeah. and I'm asking your, your, your position on the protest. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm not going to opine on limiting anything. I'm telling you what it is, the danger. And you can make your own conclusion about that. I have a conclusion. I have a conclusion, and it's this. You like leftists. You are okay when leftists gather. You're not okay when Christians gather, conservative Christians gather. That doesn't bother you. It's amazing.
Now, listen to this cut. This is from CNN back in April. This was when Dr. Anthony Fauci discussed stay-at-home orders with Anderson Cooper. Listen to cut six. Some states are still not issuing stay-at-home orders. I mean, whether there should be a federally mandated uh, directive for that or not, that I guess that's more of a political question. But just scientifically, yeah. doesn't everybody have to be on the same page with this stuff? Yeah, I, I think so, Anderson. I don't understand why that's not happening. As you said, you know, the tension between federally mandated versus states' rights to do what they want is something I don't want to get into. But if you look at what's going on in this country, I just don't understand why we're not doing that. We really should be. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're the guy who just told Congressman Jim Jordan that it's not your place to make any sort of moral judgments on whether or not particular gatherings should take place during COVID-19. There we have another example where Dr. Fauci broke his own rule. Are you seeing what's going on here? Now let's pivot to another story. The NFL. This is amazing. This is from The Federalist. There's a deal that's been reached by the National Football League and the NFL Players Association banning players from attending any indoor church services that are above 25% capacity. This is according to multiple sources talking to NBC Sports over the weekend. And they're going to also restrict, I don't know, indoor concerts. And yeah, because there's so many of those right now. How, how fair is that? Professional sports games, indoor parties with 15 or more people. Okay, but didn't we just have a court case over this that you can't do this? I, I just interviewed, I believe it was Jeremy Dice just a few days ago regarding that Navy officer who was told by the Air Force, actually, one of the branches, I think it was the Navy, he was an Air Force officer working in the Navy, and he was told he couldn't go to church. And that was reversed before it ever went to court. So good luck with that one, NFL. I'm telling you, it's a war against the church. And finally, finally, probably the most outrageous story of the weekend, among many outrageous stories over the weekend. Did you see the video of the leftist activists in Portland burning Bibles? And I looked at that for a moment, and it was interesting to watch Pagan's comment on that because they didn't get it at all. Oh, well, I'm not even sure that's a Bible. It's red. I'm like, okay, have you, are you not familiar with Bible publishing? They have every specialty Bible in the world in all the colors of the rainbow, if you know anything about Bible publishing. But I, I tell you, what came to mind, what came to mind for me was King Jehoiakim. Do you remember him? One of the last kings of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. He didn't like when the prophet Jeremiah was prophesying to him what was to come to Judah prior to the Babylonian captivity and the you know call to repent. He didn't like that. Do you remember what he did? This is in Jeremiah chapter 36. He burned Jeremiah's scroll. The king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when this scroll was read, just a three or four columns of it. It says the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, and Gamariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded the king's son and the son of Israel and the son of Abdeel to seize the scribe and Jeremiah, but the Lord hid them. And you remember how it all ended? He reigned 11 years. He rewrote the scroll. The Jeho- Jer- Jeremiah rewrote the scroll later that Jeho- Jehoiakim had burned and God pronounced judgment on the king. 
And the prophecy was fulfilled in the 11th year of Jehoiakim's reign. He stopped paying tribute to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar responded by besieging Jerusalem, and he was killed during the siege, his body thrown over the city wall. You cannot neglect the word of God. You cannot throw it away, and you can't burn it without repercussions. And I want to pray for these people because they do not know what they are doing. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They need the gospel. This hour, Janet Mefford today brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us continue to send Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. $5 is all it takes to send one Bible. Call now 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next time. 